morning, everyone. Scripture text today comes from Luke 19, 28 through 44. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You, are sh you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who, are, who were sent away went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they, said, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had, they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the day will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, O Christ. Well, as I mentioned earlier, after some microphone problems, uh, today is Palm Sunday. Today we remember the triumphal entry of the Lord Jesus Christ into Jerusalem, the day that the king came to his capital city, the rightful place of his rule, and came there to be arrested and crucified. So it's fitting that we are able to continue our Luke sermon series today with Luke's account of Christ's entry into Jerusalem. Um, unfortunately for the day, though, you may have noticed, as Tiana was reading, that Luke doesn't include the palm branches here uh, there's some discussion about why. It might be because Luke had a good number of Gentile readers, and so they might not have been familiar with some of the Jewish background to the imagery of the palm branches. Palm branches were used at the Feast of Tabernacles, remembering how God led Israel through the wilderness. They were also had been used in some Jewish victory celebrations, uh, such as uh, when they overthrew Syrian oppressors 200 years earlier, if you're familiar with the story of the, the Maccabees. But perhaps it's that since uh, Luke's Gentile readers didn't know that history, it wouldn't have been very fondly of him to include it. Uh, they might have thought that the palm branches were throwing shade or, or something like that. I don't know. I'm not going to go coconuts with this bit because palm trees, they just didn't give me that much material to work with. They might help you get a date. Um, so, I'm, I'm sorry, face palm, I know. But back to the point. 
Luke doesn't go into detail about the palms, doesn't include the detail about the palms for reasons we can only assume are unique to his audience and situation, but the meaning of Palm Sunday is in full agreement with the other gospel writers. The point of Palm Sunday is not the, the, the palm branches, as fun as those are for the, for the kids, uh, but that what they signify, that Jesus Christ is the king. He is the victorious king, but the king who comes in peace. That's what Palm Sunday is all about, Charlie Brown. It's significant that Luke, in his gospel, puts the parable of the ten minas right before this Palm Sunday account. We looked at that parable, it was a couple of weeks ago. It's a parable about the judgment that comes when Christ returns. And a key theme in that passage is that Christ is king. The parable was about a man who goes to a far country to receive a kingdom and then returns with authority to judge. Servants are judged based on their response to their king. So Jesus Christ is gentle and lowly, but even in his first coming here, he is neither hesitant nor apologetic about the fact that he is the king. His authority is on display in this triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which is what we look at today. I'm going to roughly divide the text into three main sections. Uh, there's really only two, but we're going to call it three. Uh, the first two will focus on the fact that Jesus is king. Those sections, where we're going to talk about the donkey, and then we'll talk about the praise of Christ's followers, his disciples. And the second part, we'll look at what kind of king Jesus is. We'll look at how he's the king who weeps for his rebellious people. So first, the donkey. Uh, one thing about the donkey, it does give you some pun opportunity, but that's a word that we are only allowed to say in certain Christmas carols, so we're not going to mention that today. We're going to move on. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, and why did he do that? Well, first, to fulfill scripture. Luke doesn't quote it, but even but this event, it fulfills the prophecy uh, that Zechariah, the prophet, had spoken some 500 years earlier. Zechariah chapter 9, starting in verse 9, he says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Jesus instructs his disciples to go and find this donkey so he can ride it into Jerusalem in fulfillment of the scriptures. Christ is devoted to fulfilling the scriptures. He's a sinless human being who is wholly devoted to submitting to the word of God, but he also is God, and that's his word, and he is faithful to fulfill it. But the emphasis here as we see it in its fulfillment, is the authority of Jesus. The donkey story demonstrates the authority of Christ. He's in control. He knows exactly where to find the donkey that he needs, not just any donkey, but one that's both ready to ride and has never been ridden yet. He knows exactly what to tell the disciples in order to claim this from its owner. He sends the disciples, tells them to go and make it happen. So Jesus is in control of what is about to happen in Jerusalem. We see him in control as he rides in. So the events that we will see in the week of his life to come, leading up to his death, 
it's not ultimately the result of the leaders and enemies plotting against him. It is the result of his own plan for his own purposes. As he said in the Gospel of John, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. So Jesus is in charge. There are some cultural aspects to the way Jesus displays his authority as well. The, the way this plays out communicates something. He, he sends representatives to order the donkey's owner to give him the donkey. He's not asking the owner. He's telling him the master has need of this. There was an ancient practice, commentators tell me, commentaries say, ancient practice called angaria, where certain civil or religious leaders could claim the use of someone else's donkey or horse to use for transportation. Up to this point, Jesus has been walking everywhere. He could have said at this point, I don't practice angaria. I'm just going to walk into Jerusalem as he's done any other city in his life. So it's significant that this wandering rabbi, ever the pedestrian, suddenly commands the use of a donkey for the last leg of his journey. The king of kings does not simply walk into Jerusalem. Jesus is asserting his kingship. It's fitting for Jesus to ride into Jerusalem, showered with the praise and adoration of his people. This is right. This is the right way for him to proceed here. But why a donkey? What is it about the donkey? Is it just an arbitrary symbol that Zechariah picked or God picked through Zechariah? Could he just as easily have ridden in on, I don't know, a camel or an elephant, a Segway, a Pope Mobile or something into Jerusalem, if that's what Zechariah had prophesied? Well, not, not exactly. Um, a couple of years ago, several years ago, I was preaching here. It was Palm Sunday. I, I ended up picking Zechariah 9 and got a little too into trying to figure out the exact imagery of the donkey. I was about to have uh, my wife get on her university account and download or borrow a dissertation on the imagery of the donkey in the ancient Near East, and I stopped short of doing that. I caught myself. I realized I was going too deep, but um, it's common to hear that the symbolism of, of a donkey, it symbolizes humility. Zechariah does say humble and mounted on a donkey. We tend to tie those ideas together. There is some connection, but in modern stories, donkeys tend to be portrayed as kind of silly, stubborn, stupid animals. They're, they're almost there for comic relief in most of the stories. Um, I think of Sancho Panza's donkey in the, the novel Don Quixote, or perhaps you might think of uh, Eddie Murphy, uh, his donkey in uh, the Shrek movies is, is a little bit silly. Uh, I will decline to make the obvious political joke here as well, but in those days, it was very normal for people, people to ride a donkey. It wasn't considered this, this silly thing. In biblical times, especially the Old Testament, which is where this donkey imagery ultimately comes from, right? It's Zechariah. The paradigm is not quite horses are, are beautiful, noble animals and donkeys are goofy, silly animals. For example, to look at the horses on the other side of the equation, when Psalm 20 famously says some trust in uh, chariots and some trust in horses, these horses are bred for a single purpose, war. The horse is strongly associated with battle in the Old Testament. The donkey, not so much. There's a reference or two to armies with some donkeys, maybe to carry supplies, but you just don't have the image of the valiant warrior riding into battle on his mighty battle donkey. 
Donkeys were generally used for transportation, and people, rulers even, did ride on donkeys. There wasn't anything that they considered unusual uh, or comical about it. But a king riding in on a horse would be a different image than a king riding in on a donkey because horses are so associated with battle. Arriving on a horse, maybe it's similar to riding in on a tank. And in the book of Revolution, Revolution, wow, the book of Revelation, I don't, as far as I know, there's no book of Revolution. That might have been something they would use back when they were debating about, you know, whether the earth revolves around the sun or something like that. But sorry, I don't, I don't know. What was I talking about? Anyway, Jesus comes back in Revelation, uh, and he's riding on a war horse, right? Um, but on that day, he rode a donkey, because on that day, he came not for war, but for peace. Looking ahead to the teaching of Christ in Jerusalem, uh, between Palm Sunday and Good Friday, we do see him confronting sin. We see him responding to challenges to uh, his authority. We do see him warning about the judgment to come, but he's not there to deliver that judgment. He's there to deliver his people from that judgment, to provide the things that make for peace. We'll come back to that point later. Meanwhile, the main point I want to make right now is that Christ is the king. By taking the donkey and riding in in triumphal entry, he boldly does proclaim his kingship. He proclaims that he is in control. He reigns over all the plotting and scheming and betrayal that is to come. He reigns over everything that he is about to suffer. Jesus has set the itinerary for this trip to Jerusalem. And everything will proceed as scheduled. He is king, even in his own suffering and death. And this same king is Lord of your life and of mine. He's the one who sets the itinerary for your life. The, the same Lord who suffered and died for you. Christian, have you considered that if his rule was not thwarted even by his own death, then neither are his purposes for you thwarted by whatever's going on in your life. Those who are in Christ Jesus will never suffer what he suffered, the condemnation and wrath of God. Christ has borne it for us, but Christians do suffer. We suffer pain, we suffer stress and grief and, and sickness. Christians suffer persecution. Unless Christ returns first, Christians will suffer death. And we won't always know why. But we can always know that through all these things, our lives are held safe in the loving reign of the one who for us endured the cross. But not only our suffering, but even our sin does not thwart the rule of Christ. Now, I want to be careful here because the point I'm not making is you can go ahead and sin all you want, disobey all you want, since that's not going to stop his plan. If that's your attitude... Uh, there's a good chance you don't really believe that Christ is king. And you may find yourself in the same situation as those rebellious citizens in the parable of the ten minas that came right before this. They didn't stop the king from receiving his kingdom, receiving his authority, though they tried. But he used that authority to have them executed before him. That is a strong warning in scripture, and we ought to take it seriously. Yet for those who do trust the king, who do trust Jesus, 
and who do seek to obey, we find our obedience is mixed, don't we? Our conduct is a mix of the, spirit, the Spirit's glorious fruit in our lives and the fruit of our own foolishness and pride. But consider this. Most of the 12 disciples, they ran away in the week to come. Peter denied him three times. But Jesus still accomplished his purposes through them, didn't he? He still built his church through their ministry as apostles. Their sins didn't stop King Jesus from using them to accomplish his purposes. Neither will your sins, past failures or future failures, neither will these things prevent King Jesus from accomplishing what he has planned through you. You haven't derailed his plan for your life, and you never will. You are safely in his sovereign care. Christ's claim to kingship is also displayed by the fact that he affirms the treatment his followers give him. They show us the right response to Christ the King, and we're in our second point about their response, their treatment of Christ as he rides into Jerusalem on the donkey. Some of them use their own cloaks to make a kind of saddle for this donkey for him to sit on. Others throw their cloaks on the road he rides on. Think of the humility of this act. You take off your outer garment, the clothes off your own back, and you lay them on the dusty, dirty ground for a donkey to step on. And the only reason this donkey is worthy of that treatment is because of who is sitting on it, because he's sitting on it, because this is the donkey the king is riding on. It's not fitting that its hooves should be contaminated with the dust of the ground. I couldn't help but notice that none of the men of this church had their sports coats laid out in the uh, driveway to the church as I drove in this morning, lest my tires of my Chevy Malibu should become dirty with the dust of the ground. I'm just going to assume that you're saving that for Pastor Appreciation Month. Uh, I'm joking. Please don't do that. That would be weird. Um, but, I mean, you can if you want, but anyway, uh, it means nothing to me. I, I don't care. I, you, you can take a close look at our vehicles and tell I really don't care about them, but it just the point is to think about the kind of humility this takes, and they just took red carpet treatment to the next level entirely, and Jesus didn't stop it. He receives this as a beautiful and fitting act of adoration and praise and worship. Just a quick sidebar here for our Palm Sunday considerations. Notice that Luke says the whole multitude of his disciples in whatever verse it is here. I haven't been following along for you, sorry. Uh, I missed it, there you go. Yeah, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God. Uh, not just the 12, but anyone, using the term disciple more broadly here, for all who had been following with him uh, on the road to Jerusalem here. So this is not the same crowd that later shouts for his crucifixion. It would really preach well if that were the case, uh, that the crowd who, that laid down their cloaks and palm branches turned on him by the end of the week. That's how fickle and sinful we are as people. Now, people really are that sinful and fickle, but that's not exactly what happened here. The palm branch crowd were followers of Jesus who were traveling to Jerusalem with him, not a welcoming committee made up of citizens of Jerusalem. The Palm Sunday crowd didn't turn about and shout, crucify him. That was mostly the citizens of Jerusalem. 
as Christ himself, uh, weeping for them, predicts the, the rebellion, rejection of the city of Jerusalem. Not that the Palm Sunday crowd was perfect by any stretch. When Jesus is arrested, many run away, although Luke does also say a great multitude followed Jesus and wept for him as he was led away to be crucified. Those who ran and those who wept, they did so because they didn't understand what was going on, right? There's a lot that they don't get. We know that. This isn't what they expected. Right before this, at the outset of that parable of the, the ten minas, uh, Jesus, well, Luke tells us why Jesus says this parable. It's because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So they didn't understand something about how the kingdom was coming. What they don't understand is the timeline. They think the kingdom is coming in its fullness now. More than that, the crowd didn't understand how the kingdom was to come. They think, and if we were there, I don't know that I could blame them, but they thought that this powerful miracle worker is going to use his power to overthrow the Roman government and restore Israel to its former glory. They're expecting the king on a war horse, essentially, not the king on the donkey. They don't understand that this king came to make peace between God and people of all nations by his mightiest display of power yet, his death and resurrection, by conquering sin on the cross and then conquering death in the grave. They didn't understand that, but they knew who the king was. They knew that Jesus Christ is king. They rejoiced in the mighty works of God that they had seen. They had seen displayed in the ministry of Christ. They knew that his works were the works of God. They quoted Psalm 118, which we sang earlier, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118 is best understood as a victorious celebration of a return from battle. The people were delivered by God's hand, and they praised God as they returned home alongside their king. And they shouted, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Does that sound familiar? Sounds like a different holiday again, right? Uh, they saw in Christ the same thing that those angels saw as they sang, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace when Christ was born. So the point I'm trying to make is that their praise, though it was incomplete, though they didn't have all their theology right here, it was nonetheless a good and right and fitting response. Jesus affirms it. He doesn't sort of, you know, push up his glasses and say, well, actually, Dutch theologian Gerhardus Vos correctly observes that at this time I only inaugurate the eschaton, while the fulfillment must await the parousia. No, it's the Pharisees that try to shut him up. They tell him that he needs to re uh, rebuke his followers, that this isn't appropriate. Now, it's possible that they're worried about backlash from Rome, or maybe they're just plain offended that people are following him instead of them. Either way, they want to stop this display of Christ's authority out of deference to someone else's claim to power, whether it's Rome's or their own. And Jesus' answer, if it weren't true, would be audacious, brazen. He says, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. He takes his claim to authority to the next level. It's, he's not just king for these people, but he extends his kingship to all creation. It is not only fitting that these people praise him, it is fitting that the very stones 
cry out. The mindless rocks of the ground recognize the kingship of Christ. Like Paul says in Romans 8, all creation has been groaning until now. Creation eagerly awaits the fulfillment of Christ's work, eagerly awaits the rule of King Jesus. And by the way, in the Old Testament, there is only one who is king of all creation, and that is God. Jesus strongly affirms he is not only king, he is God. He affirms that the praise of this crowd is right. He accepts their humble praise because he is the king of his people, of all people, of all creation. So that's the right response to King Jesus. Wonder, love, and praise, humbling ourselves before him in order to magnify and glorify him. Joyful praise to God, who through this king performs the mighty works that bring us peace. To rejoice, for the Lord is king. So it's humble and and joyful submission to Christ the king in all that we say and all that we do. So we won't go into a whole lot of detail here, but it's worth asking ourselves the question, how are we to lay our cloaks before King Jesus today? How are we to humble ourselves that we might magnify him? That should be our goal in everything that we do, whether it's coming here and and worshiping together or our personal prayer lives or, or simply the way that we love and serve our families, our friends, our neighbors, in hospitality, in generosity, in encouragement, in correction, in forgiveness, in godly living, in in sharing our faith, prayers of intercession. You know, Jesus said that whatever you do for the least of his brothers, you do for him. So he may call you to change continents and become a missionary or change a diaper in the nursery. Ways that seem great and small to us. Both, I think, take humility. It takes a certain amount of humility to do something that involves hardship if you want to go with being a missionary in a foreign mission field and and, and suffering uh, inconvenience and loss of comfort and maybe even persecution. It also takes humility to to go and, and change a diaper and do something that seems small. But in ways that seem great or small to us, we serve King Jesus, we humbly display his glory, his greatness, because we do these things not to build ourselves up, but to build up the fame of his name. The third point is that Jesus weeps. In verse 41, the tone of the passage changes. It shifts dramatically from joy to sorrow. And it is a striking picture, isn't it? Jesus, here he is, surrounded by crowds of people who are shouting for joy because of him, because he's finally coming to Jerusalem. But what does he do when he sees Jerusalem? He bursts into tears. He weeps. Just picture it. A multitude of joyful people all gathered around the king with tears in his eyes. When Zechariah said, Behold, your king comes to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, the word humble could just as easily be translated afflicted. Maybe this is the affliction, that he's weeping, he's grieved for his people. We should, for one thing, be in awe of the character of the man Jesus Christ. When you're surrounded 
by people rallying to your cause, affirming God's work in you, or otherwise building up your ego in every way, how high is the temptation to just despise those who criticize you? You think, I'm the greatest. Everyone around me says so. Anyone who doesn't like it, anyone who doesn't like me, they can stuff it. But that's not Jesus' attitude here, even though he actually is the greatest. But he taught us to love our enemies, and he practiced exactly what he preached. Jesus is about to enter into Jerusalem, and he knows exactly how the people are going to respond to him. He knows exactly what the people in Jerusalem are going to do to him. He knows how the leaders will conspire against him to have him arrested and killed. He knows that the people of Jerusalem will rally to that cause and threaten Pilate, essentially, with a riot if he doesn't carry out this crucifixion. And he knows what he will suffer on the cross, this public execution designed specifically for the humiliation of the victim and for the entertainment of those crowds who cried out for it. Jesus knows exactly how greatly he will suffer at their hands, and he weeps not for himself. He weeps for them. He weeps because he knows how they will suffer as a consequence of their rejection. The calamity that he predicts in verses 43 and 44, that's the destruction of Jerusalem, which does happen at the hands of the Romans in AD 70. The Romans besiege Jerusalem and destroy it, it utterly destroy it, exactly as Jesus said they would. The accounts of what those people suffered at that time are absolutely horrific. Jesus knows what is coming, and he weeps for them. Jesus has loved his enemies throughout. Even when he is debating, confronting, warning them of judgment to come, he's not doing those things to try to own them or destroy them or humiliate them. He confronts and corrects and warns out of a genuine concern, a genuine love for them. I will, I'll argue that's still true even in the next passage, uh, which I guess it won't be next week because next week is Easter, but w when he drives the money changers out of the temple. Even after they call for his death, as he's walking to his death, he tells that crowd that was weeping, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves and your children. Even as they drive the nails into his hands and feet, what does he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? That's how God revealed his heart through the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 33. Now there are some deep mysteries in this because we know God does not suffer. God does not suffer pain. He is God. And yet, when God the Son takes on a human heart, a heart that does suffer pain and sorrow and, sorrow and grief, the appropriate human expression of the heart of God toward sinners is weeping. Maybe a simpler way to put it is this. When a perfect, sinless human being 
saw sinners the way God sees them, he wept for them. And therein lies a good application question for you and me. Is that your response to the sin that you see in the world, to the rejection of God that you see in the world? When we consider what goes on in our own capital cities, our own culture, our own world, what's our reaction? Is it, is it mostly anger, disgust, fear? Are we preoccupied with how those things might lead to our suffering? Jesus knew suffering we can't imagine, but he wept for how the world's rejection would lead to their own suffering. I'm not saying we can't be aware of what's going on and confront and correct, even as Christ did. But like him, we should be more concerned not for protecting ourselves, but for our mission, following in the footsteps of our Savior, to seek and save the lost. He was on a mission of peace, not a mission of, of culture war. Jesus came in peace. He earnestly desired to make peace with his people. Though they sinned against him, though they have rejected him, though their rejection is the reason for his death, still he comes in peace, and still he offers peace today. Jesus is still, if I can speak in this way, the king on the donkey weeping for sinners, saying, would that you would know Today, the things that make for peace. This, by the way, doesn't diminish the authority of Jesus. We do have to hold these truths together, even if they seem to us to be in tension, that he takes no delight in the death of the wicked, but he also does not hesitate when the time comes for judgment. The door is open wide. It can't stay open forever. The people of Jerusalem did not know the day of their visitation. They didn't recognize that in Christ, God was calling to them. They didn't respond to the plea for peace. They rejected it. If you're hearing this message, you're hearing the same call to recognize Jesus for who he is and receive him and the peace that he brings. Now is the time to respond. If you have not made peace with God or received the peace, rather, that Christ has made with God, God is eager for you to do so. He himself has already provided the things that make for peace, the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. He has met all the terms of this peace agreement on your behalf. He has paid for your transgressions, past, present, and future, and he has performed all the duties and obligations to perfection. The call is to give up. Give up on trying to earn God's approval and simply place your trust in Christ the King. And if you do so, God does not merely accept you. God joyfully welcomes you home. So on Palm Sunday, this is the King that we see. This is who he is. This is his character. We behold our King. We see his majesty. We see his glory. We see his power and authority. We see his peace and compassion. On Palm Sunday, we worship our King who laid down his life to rescue rebels like you and like me. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Let us pray.
Father, we come before you recognizing that we have been like the people of Jerusalem. We have rejected, we have rebelled, and like them, we fully earned condemnation and judgment that your righteousness, your authority requires. And yet, we recognize that you sent your son to be our king, to express his authority in this way that is incomprehensible to us, to assert his authority not in condemnation, not in our destruction, but in peace, in compassion, by laying down his life for us. We struggle to understand how great your love must be for us. And we struggle to wrap our minds around this paradoxical display of both majesty and humility that we see in the face of Christ Jesus. This week, many of us will be considering the meaning of the last week of Christ. We'll be considering his teaching, his suffering, his death, his resurrection. We pray that through your spirit, you would help us to see Christ rightly. And may we be transformed by what we see. May that transformation be visible to all who see us, that not only by our words and proclaiming the message of Christ, but also by our lives in living in joyful submission to Christ, it would be the glory of Christ that is on display through us. We ask these things in the name of Christ the King. Amen.